0: I hope you're enjoying our study through the Old Testament book of Ruth. We will resume our study by considering the middle portion of the second chapter of Ruth. Beginning in Ruth chapter 2, verse 8, we read, Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. that thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, it has fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come into a people which thou knewest not hithertofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like one of thine handmaidens. In Robert Robinson's great hymn, Come Thou Fount, we find these words, O to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. We find here in the second chapter of Ruth a story and example of grace and how we are indebted to the grace of God. The story of every believer's life is a story of grace. Whether it is fully comprehended or not on our part, each of us is to grace a great debtor. In each of our lives, there is the story of saving grace, of living grace, and of dying grace. Or to put it another way, the commencement of the Christian life, the continuation of the Christian life, and the conclusion of the Christian life are all a part of the story of grace. I think of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Two or three years before Newton died, his sight was so dim that he was no longer able to read. A friend and brother in the ministry would have breakfast with him, and their custom was that he would read the Word of God. Newton would make a few remarks on the passage and then they would pray. One particular day, they read the words of Paul found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Newton was silent for the longest time. And finally he said, I am not what I ought to be. How imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be although I abhor that which is evil and would cleave to that which is good. I am not what I hope to be, but soon I shall be out of mortality and with it all sin and imperfection. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, John Newton understood that he was a debtor to the amazing grace of God. And if we are honest, each of us must say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Yes, we are not yet what we should be or will be. But whatever good we do, however far we have come toward being what God intends us to be, whatever growth has been accomplished in our life is all due to the grace of God. Thus, like Paul and like John Newton and every other saint, we too must say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And therefore, each of us must say with Robert Robinson, O to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Each of us must say with John Bradford, There, but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. Someone has given us this acrostic of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is often defined by a comparison to God's mercy. Grace is that we get what we don't deserve, and mercy is that we don't get what we do deserve. If anyone ever understood how great a debtor one is to grace, it was Ruth. She, like Paul and Newton, had to say, I am what I am by the grace of God. All the glories she experienced were because of the grace she experienced. Notice the emphasis on grace in chapter 2. We read in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. We also find this emphasis on grace in verse 10 of chapter 2 where Ruth says, Why have I found grace in thine eyes? Let's notice the story of grace in the account before us. First, think with me of how amazing is the grace of God. Some years ago, there came out a song that said, There's no other word for grace but amazing. Now, there are many adjectives for grace, and amazing is definitely one of them. And in Ruth, we see how amazing God's grace is on our part. As we look at Ruth, we see first that nationally she was rejected. In verse 2 of this second chapter, she is called and identified as Ruth the Moabitess. When Boaz asked his servant who the stranger in the field was, we find his answer in verse 6. It is the Moabitish damsel. Now we might say that someone is from Canada or Mexico or some other foreign country and not think anything about it. But to a Jew, to say that one was from Moab had serious significance and serious consequences. God said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. The Ammonites and the Moabites, because of their wickedness, were subjected to disgrace by God and the nation of Israel. They were not permitted to hold any office among the Israelites and were looked down on. Nationally, Ruth was a member of a race that was judged and condemned by God. It was a nation and a people under condemnation. It was a nation and people that were divinely rejected. Ruth, in type, is a picture of us all before God saved us. We all were sinners under condemnation. Because of our wicked state in life, we were cut off from a holy God. We were under the wrath and judgment of a righteous God. Paul described our condition in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul tells us that we were satanically dominated. We walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. We lived under Satan's control and lived according to Satan's commands. We were also spiritually disobedient. In other words, the spirit of disobedience worked within us. Do you ever wonder why children are automatically disobedient? Why they don't have to learn or be taught to be disobedient? Why is that? Because they are born with a spirit of disobedience. Why do adults rebel against civil laws and rules and violate God's laws and commandments? Because they have a spirit of disobedience. And before we were saved, we were spiritually disobedient. We were rebellious to God's Word. We were resistant of God's ways. And we were resentful of God's will. As well, we were sensually deprived. We lived our lives fulfilling the lust and desires of the flesh and mind. We lived lives that were immoral, wicked, and carnal. Furthermore, we were subsequently damned. We were, as a result, by nature, children of wrath. We were individuals under the condemnation and wrath of God. Every person born into this world is under the same conditions and subject to the same condemnation and wrath of God. That was Jesus' point when he was having a theological discussion with Nicodemus. Listen to what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus did not come to judge and condemn the world and mankind because it was already under judgment. Our sinful character and sinful conduct have already condemned us. So we were no better off than Ruth and she was no worse off than us. We were all sinners under condemnation. Yet we see that personally she was received. Ruth was first called a Moabitess, but now notice how she is addressed in verse 8 of chapter 2. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter? Boaz didn't receive her as a foreigner, but as family. He called her my daughter, not a Moabitess. The law rejected her, but Boaz received her. Oh dear friend, is that not the story of us all? We were condemned and without hope but by and because of God's amazing grace, we have been accepted in the Beloved. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, "...to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved." It's just as John Newton said in his great hymn, "...amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see." We were sinners, but by grace we are now saints. We were children of wrath, but now we are the children of God. Once we had no hope, but now we have a blessed hope. Once we were rejected, but now we are received. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow could write a poem, and it would be worth hundreds of dollars. We call that talent. John Jacob Astor could sign his name to a piece of paper and buy a skyscraper. We call that capital Michelangelo could take some brushes and some paints and paint a masterpiece on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. We call that art. A mechanic can take a used and ruined part from your automobile engine, replace it with a new one, and make the car nearly as good as new. We call that skill. But only God can take a poor, worthless, devastated, hell-bound sinner condemned by God Wash Him in the blood of Jesus Christ and make Him a Son of God. And we call that grace. Glory to God for His amazing grace. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Ruth was a Moabitess. But to Boaz, she was a daughter. She had been rejected, but now she is received. Instead of getting what she deserved, she found grace. How amazing the grace of God is. But secondly, think with me of how abundant the grace of God is. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul spoke of the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In Ruth, we see the exceeding riches of grace that were shown to her by Boaz. When we talk about the grace of God, we speak of all that has been given to us by God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. So grace is abundant in our life. But how is grace abundant in our life? Well, answering that question would certainly take more than one study. But let's just confine our answer to what we see here in Ruth. First, think with me of how grace brings direction to our life. Notice in Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that Boaz said to Ruth, "'Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence.' But abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Ruth receives words of guidance and direction from Boaz. Grace brings into our life blessings of guidance and direction. Before we were saved, we were like a ship on a stormy sea without a captain or a compass. But when we were saved by grace, a captain stepped on board And we are guided by His divine compass. We read in Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. We also read in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. There is God's spiritual direction for our life. And there is God's sovereignly directing our life. Yes, grace brings direction into our lives. Also, think of how grace brings protection for our life. Notice Ruth chapter two, verse nine. There it says, Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? Boaz was concerned that others might take advantage of Ruth. From what we know of Ruth, she was a very attractive woman. But Boaz made sure that she would be saved. You see, God is watching over our lives. He is the keeper of our soul and guard of our life. We have this promise in Psalm 121, verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. He told about a B-29 bomber that took off from the island of Guam for Kokura, Japan. When the plane arrived at its primary target, a thick cloud covering hid that target. They circled above for 30 minutes, then 45 minutes, until 55 minutes had passed and their gas supply was dwindling to the dangerous point. They didn't want to pass up the primary target, but they had no choice. They headed for their secondary target, where they dropped their bomb. Weeks later, an officer received information from military intelligence that sent chills down his spine. Thousands of allied prisoners of war, the biggest concentration of Americans in enemy hands, had been moved to Kukura a week before the suspended bombing. The city they had originally intended to bomb had become a huge prison camp. Had they bombed it, thousands of Americans would have died. That which stopped them was a cloud, and the city they bombed was Nagasaki, and the bomb they dropped was the world's second atomic bomb. There is a God in heaven that watches over his own. In the abundance of grace, we find protection. I also think of how grace brings satisfaction to our life. Notice again in verse 9, "...and when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels, and drink of that which the young men have drawn." Under God's welfare program, she could glean in the field, but that was all she was entitled to do. Yet Boaz told her that she could drink of the water that was provided for his workers, when she was thirsty. He said, if you get thirsty, you satisfy your thirst. In the Bible, the quenching of thirst symbolizes satisfaction. The abundant grace of God has brought satisfaction to our life. Before we were saved, we were like workers laboring under the hot, burning sun without a drop of water to quench our thirst. But grace has provided for us water to quench that thirst and satisfy our longing. The essayist Charles Lamb said, I walk up and down thinking I am happy and knowing I am not. To many, satisfaction is about as rare as the bald eagle. The New York Times estimated that about 5 million people living in America have tried to kill themselves. One couple wrote to a syndicated columnist, We have a nice home, well furnished, a new car, and money in the bank. Our two sons have finished college and are happily married and doing well. We have excellent jobs, and our combined incomes make it possible for us to live comfortably. So why are we writing this letter? Because suddenly we find life empty and boring. Are we different, or does this happen to all couples in later midlife? Why, despite their comfort and prosperity, were they not contented and satisfied? Because they did not have a relationship with the Lord, and therefore they had no satisfaction. Revelation 21, verse 6 says, And He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto Him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The answer to direction in life, the answer to protection for life and satisfaction to life is the personally experiencing of God's abundant grace. And to experience that abundant and abounding grace, you must have a relationship with Christ. Harry Truman At first thought, he lost the election in 1945. The headlines read, Dewey defeats Truman. Later, when the count was all in, Truman had defeated Dewey. Truman wrote to his mother, I had hurried to the White House to see the president, and when I got there, I found out I was the president. Ruth came from Moab with nothing, only to find out when she got to the field of Boaz, she had everything. How abundant and amazing is the grace of God. And thirdly, Think with me of how astounding is the grace of God. Everything had happened so fast. One day she didn't know where the next meal was coming from, and the next day her life is blessed beyond comprehension. Notice how her experience with grace affected her. First, it was all overwhelming to her heart. It says in Ruth chapter 2, verse 10, Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? It was more than she could believe. All Ruth could say was, why? I submit unto you that there is nothing any more overwhelming to the heart than what God has done for us in Christ. I heard about a woman that has 16 children. As you can imagine, she had her hands full. One day, one little girl fell into a tar pit. She had tar all over her. It was in her hair, ears, up her nose, and under her fingernails. She was covered in tar. Her mother started trying to clean her up, and in frustration said, I declare, I believe it would be easier to have another one than clean this one up. The truth is, we were all a mess. We may think that we were cleaner or better than some other people, but the truth is, we are all of us a mess. There was nothing in us or about us that deserved God's love. There was nothing in us that merited God giving His Son to die for us on a cross. In the state and condition we were in, we should have been in hell. Most of us were a lot like the daughter of Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, theologian, and revivalist. Jonathan Edwards had a daughter with an ungovernable temper. It was not well known to the outside, but was regretfully known in the home. A worthy young man fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. He came to see Edwards and asked for her hand in marriage. Abruptly Edwards said You can't have her. The young man, taken back somewhat, said, But I love her. You can't have her again was Edward's reply. She loves me. You can't have her. Finally the young man asked why. And Jonathan Edwards said because she is not worthy of you. The young man said she is a Christian, is she not? Edwards replied. Yes, she is a Christian, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. Truthfully, only God's grace allows Him to live within you and I. It is overwhelming to the heart to realize that God would love us, that He would save us, and that He would make us His own child. In the words of the songwriter, and it's all because of God's amazing grace, if we are so undeserving, then why? Notice what Ruth 2, verses 11 and 12 says, And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not hithertofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Ruth had experienced the kindness and grace of Boaz because she had embraced the people of God and had trusted the Lord God of Israel. Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The amazing and abundant grace of God is experienced when by faith one puts their trust in the Lord. It is not because we earn it or deserve it, because we merit it or achieve it, but because we put our trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And in fact, that is what Paul affirms in the next verse, Ephesians 2, verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And in Titus 3, 5, he declares, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. God gives us abundant, astounding, and amazing grace in exchange for, or as a result of, our faith in Jesus Christ. What a transaction! It is still overwhelming to the soul. Furthermore, and lastly, we see that what she experienced was overflowing from her heart. Listen to Ruth chapter two verse thirteen. Then she said, "Let me find favor in thy sight, my lord, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaiden, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens." Overflowing from her heart was a desire to please Boaz. She wanted to find favor in his eyes. She had already found undeserved favor, which is grace. But in response to the grace of Boaz, Ruth desired to please him and thereby find favor. A desire to please God is the proper response to God's grace. As Robert Robinson said, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. That thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. An understanding of God's grace makes us realize what a debtor to grace we are. It constrains us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. May we be constantly reminded of God's amazing, abundant, and astounding grace. And may we be constrained to live to please Him every day. And may God bind our wandering heart to Him.